This is Sugar, a tale of motherhood and medicine. If you're just joining us, please go back and start at episode one. I'm the author, Raisa Hakoen. This memoir is my experience of becoming a first-time mother and navigating the healthcare system for my son, who was diagnosed with a rare condition. Pompous Postmortem The next morning, Pompous came over to your giraffe. The conversation was strained, but I had a good night's sleep behind me, and I saw things a bit more clearly. From my previous experience working with megalomaniac dictators, I knew that there was only one way to deal with them. Power, logic, statistics, graphs, experience, attention to detail, none of these things speak to them. To get through, you need to appeal to their egos. As much as I believed I was right, I knew for a fact that for the next month, he was the dictator of the NICU, and he could make our lives hell. However, I also knew that as your parents and guardians, we had a legal right to the final say in your medical treatment. And since this was Israel with a socialized medical system, he could not legally refuse to treat you without legal consequences and even jail time. Our conversation went a little something like this. Pompous. Mrs. Hakoen, where is your husband? Me. He's at work. Pompous. When will he be home? Me. I don't know. Late? Pompous. Well, since he's not here, I will speak with you directly. We cannot properly treat your son when you are interfering with his treatment. I wanted to put him on Similac because it is high in sugar. I am a doctor, and this is not a simple case. You need to let me do my job, and going forward, I would request that you not interfere with his treatment. I know you are emotional because he is your son, but you don't know what is best for him. Goodbye. Me. You motherfucking motherfucker. I will kill you. I will slit your tires. I will rape, burn, and pillage until you have nothing left. Okay, I didn't really say that last bit, but I wanted to. I stared directly into his eyes as if my retinas were burning a hole into his chest and melting him into oblivion. I bit my tongue and cursed him to the seventh circle of hell in my mind. I thought it was best that way. I was a mother now. And however I felt personally, I was playing a long game. And I wasn't playing it alone. I was playing it for my family. It might not have been the right thing to do, but it was surely the smart thing. Since our conversation went so swimmingly in the morning, I thought that discussion would be our last. Imagine my surprise when he called me into his office that afternoon. What could we possibly have left to talk about? I waited outside and then knocked on his door. As I entered, I reminded myself that patience was a virtue and that being smart was more important than being right. Oh boy, here we go again, I thought as I took a seat across from his desk. Pompous. Please take a seat. Well, tell me how you see his condition and care up until now. Hmm, I thought to myself. A promising beginning. He's including me in the dialogue, and the discussion about treatment. I thought it best to try to give as medical perspective as I could. To him, we weren't talking about my son, my firstborn, my one and only child. To him, you were a patient. 
Me. Well, my son was born in week 38. He was diagnosed at birth with hyperinsulinemia and presented with pulmonary hypertension, fat necrosis, and a host of other issues. He was treated with glucagon, sandostatin, and diazoxide for his low blood sugar, in addition to continuous food via feeding tube. He overcame the pulmonary hypertension and started breathing on his own about a month ago. The fat necrosis he also overcame in week four. No one is sure why. Then he presented with an impaired liver function and a large defect in his heart, which was closed via surgery. A gastrostomy was performed to assist with his continuous feeds. We were lucky that he was diagnosed so quickly, but your consulting endocrinologist is following, not leading. She took him off diazoxide only after we brought in a secondary medical opinion report from CHOP, the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. The CHOP report recommended discontinuing diazoxide as the medical literature indicated it was an ineffective medication for him based on genetics. She submitted the paperwork request for a continuous glucose monitor only once we, the family, advocated for it at the behest of other medical professionals. She has visited him, her only NICU patient, once or twice a week at most during our entire four-month stay, even during periods when he was quite unstable. In spite of her mediocrity, he went from being on 20 medications a day and now is only on glucagon injections six times a day and continuous food. We are very familiar with his regimen now. Our lives in the hospital have, for better or worse, become habitual, and we don't see any additional potential for a change in treatment beyond the international surgery we were preparing for. You guys have done a great job of getting him better. We know that he's a very complicated case and a tricky patient. Having said that, my husband and I feel that treatment-wise, we've hit a brick wall. We are ready to go home and for you to release us and for us to care for him at home prior to his international surgery. These additional last-ditch efforts are just that, small tricks to try to stabilize his sugars. We have agreed and done most of them already in the first few months we were here. We've been here for four months, and every time the head of the NICU changes, we circle back. It's as if you are starting treatment all over again. We have four months of data that we have collected that is being ignored. See this chart? This chart is an Excel of his sugars going back four months, each on a different formula. As you can see, his sugars were the lowest on Similac and Neocate and highest on Nutramagen. In addition, after careful observation, my husband and I believe that he has an allergy to milk. He has strong reflux as a part of his condition, but he throws up much more often on the milk-based formulas. We can't repeat all the small tricks we've already tried to stabilize his sugars. Pompous says condescendingly. Well, it's very nice that you took the time to make those graphs, but you don't have any experience as a doctor. I have over 20 years of experience as a pediatric physician. But I know my son better than you do, you fucking asshole. And by the way, we're arguing about food here, not medication. You don't have to be a neuroscientist to figure out food. This is purely trial and error, and it was already tried. Pompous says, And madam, what you call tricks, we call therapeutic care. Ugh, I will slice you. I will slice your tires and then your wrists. Me. Look, as I said, you guys have done a great job. My intention is not to get in your way. We have the same objective, to get my son better. We're on the same team. Pompous. If you continue to interfere with his treatment, I will have to recuse myself from his case. Me. 
If you wish, that is your prerogative. We would prefer to have a senior doctor on his case. But if you don't feel comfortable, I understand. I think that we can work together. We are on the same team. Pompous. Well, I have decided that we will not try a new formula. We can continue to work together unless you get in the way again. Bite your tongue, Raisa. You got what you wanted. Leave before you say anything else. You should choke and die, and I will spit on your grave. The words were forcing themselves out of my throat like vomit. And like a good girl, I swallowed them up with a plastic smile seeped in disdain. Me, thank you for your time. Hail Mary. After that episode, your Abba and I knew that this was the best that this hospital could do. We were grateful for the great deal that they had done to get you healthy up until now. But as we looked forward and longed for home, we knew deep down that these were not the doctors that would get us there. The hospital endocrinologist had resigned herself for lack of any better options to sending us to Germany for a pancreatectomy to remove most of your pancreas. She was so resigned that she was only visiting you once or twice a week, as if we had already transferred care to your international surgery team. Never mind the fact that with continuous food and multiple shots, we didn't think you were stable enough to withstand another surgery, let alone an international flight to Europe. This was our last chance, a last Hail Mary before the surgery. As parents, we couldn't live with ourselves unless we had exhausted all other options prior to flying. We gave soft to the mission of finding a new doctor, a new hospital, a partner with whom we could discuss our dilemmas and challenges and plan for your future. I only wish we had found him sooner. Dr. Smith was everything we had been looking for, but hadn't yet found in a physician. He wasn't a god, but he was the closest thing to it that I have ever encountered. He was an experienced endocrinologist, well-respected and connected in the international community. He had both the patience and courage to make bold medical decisions and see them through, but he lacked the ego and arrogance of his peers. He was flexible and adaptable enough to change course if a treatment wasn't working, and most important, he was a true partner in navigating the course of your treatment. He acknowledged that we were your primary caregivers and consulted with us on his every move, pushing us when necessary, listening when important straddling the delicate line of leadership artfully. The best doctors know that medicine is more of an art than a science. The hospital switch. We neglected to tell the hospital NICU team of our transfer until the day of. Maybe not the most generous gesture, but probably the most strategic, since we wanted to secure the utmost care for you until our departure. We notified them that morning most of the staff members were shocked. Some were even offended. But I think the staff that we worked most closely with understood. The current resident in your case even said that we had to feel secure that we were exhausting all options prior to your international surgery. And that as a parent, she would have done the same thing. I packed up room five in garbage bags and said goodbye and good riddance to our home for the past four months. No love lost there. The NICU staff recommended that we, or rather they compelled us, to transfer you to the hospital via ambulance. 
So at four months old, you traveled in your second ambulance. And at 29 years old, I traveled in mine. It was only your second time off hospital grounds, but you never would have known it. The lull of the engine put you fast asleep. As a gesture of goodwill, one of the senior doctors offered to accompany us for the ambulance ride. And for that, I was grateful. They carefully moved you from your giraffe onto a gurney and into the ambulance, still hooked up to the travel monitors and continuous food and medication. I remember the ride like it was yesterday, how everything in the ambulance was packed in and secured so it wouldn't fall off the walls, how the gurney snapped into place, the seatbelts on the side. Were all ambulance drivers terrible drivers? I figured that this one was because he was used to rushing from place to place. We weren't particularly in a rush, but he drove swiftly with the lights on, siren blaring, parting traffic like the Red Sea. When we arrived at our destination, I thanked our accompanying doctor for all her time and attention. She gave me a big smile and a bear hug. A new beginning. After so little sleep, exhaustion begins to weigh you down. Running a mental marathon is hard, especially because you don't know where the finish line is. You can't tell where the milestones are, so it's impossible to gauge whether you're ahead or behind, close to the finish line or only in the first mile. Exhausting because you don't know whether to push harder or reserve your strength. You can only run the 10 feet in front of you and hope that you're doing well enough. But there are no grades, no bonuses, no telltale signs that you're doing okay. This was a hard decision, moving I mean, because it wasn't necessarily the right move. I thought it was the smart move, but I thought we'd only be able to tell in hindsight if it was the right one. One of the senior doctors said something really sweet before we transferred hospitals. Maybe I misunderstood her because she did have a very thick Russian accent in Hebrew. But she said that you have been through a lot and that you weren't lucky by a lot of parameters since you've had to overcome so much, but that you did luck out when it came to your parents. I thought that was really sweet and touching. We were now in the intermediate pediatric unit at hospital number two. Dr. Smith came by to talk to us and he called the nurses twice after his visit to check up on you and hear about your blood sugar levels. Also, the head of the unit asked for your full medical report to read and gave me her cell number and email. I thought that you would get better attention here. It was weird because it was so quiet, it didn't feel normal. No beeping and bleeping and every time your saturation went down, it was fine, the machine just wasn't reading it correctly. The nurse came over straight away one second later, like magic. I did miss all the characters of the NICU and their ridiculous ways. They had become our family once we'd become parents. But I thought that this would be a fresh start. This was a much better fit for you, for us. And for the first time ever, I got to fall asleep next to my son. Quiet, relatively quiet, alone, relatively alone. A semblance of privacy in a room with three walls and a curtain. I said a prayer to thank God for getting us to this moment in time. Misery loves company. In the midst of it all, I received an email from a close friend who had herself become a patient temporarily to undergo a major surgery. I wrote to her. 
To my dearest friend, I'm not sure where to begin. When did life get so complicated? I remember a time not so long ago when our biggest problems were what classes to take and whom to date. I feel like I've aged to about 100 over these past few years. Even though the days of our youth aren't so far away, they feel like an eternity. Firstly, I want you to know that I love you. And I know that you have the strength, courage, and grace to face this head on. I have all the confidence in you in the world. I know that it's hard to stay positive in the face of such uncertainty, but if anyone can, it's you. We've had a rough time over here as well. We have a scheduled date to fly to Germany for my son's surgery on January 20th. There is a week of testing and surgery is the following week if all tests go as planned. In the meantime, we just switched hospitals. It was a tough decision, but ultimately my husband and I felt that we knew the doctor's treatment plan was to maintain him until the surgery. And we thought that we owed it to our son and to ourselves to get a fresh pair of eyes before we went to surgery. He is improving, but it still looks like surgery is our only option right now. It's hard to believe that we've been living in hospitals for the past four months, but I really think it's the best thing right now. So I'm just trying to get through each day. That said, I do have a few coping strategies that I thought I might share in the hope that they help you too. Listen to the music, but not the words. The therapist I started seeing mentioned this one to me. I was feeling like everyone had to put in their two cents about how we were handling the situation and to see how we were doing. And it was just awful. One nameless woman asked me after my emergency C-section, how are your bowel movements? Hello? I know that she meant well. And what she really meant to say was, how are you doing? And are you taking care of yourself during this whole ordeal? But it came out as verbal diarrhea. So when you can, try to listen to the music, but not the words of your friends and loved ones. No one else can ever really know what you are going through. I think that the uncertainty is the hardest part. Try to create habit and familiarity whenever you can. Here are some of my coping strategies for hospitalization. Atmosphere. Try to bring with you things that are familiar and relaxing. Comfort food. I brought my favorite kind of really expensive tea that I never usually treat myself to and barrels of Trader Joe's peanut butter because it reminds me of home and it's a true comfort food. Music. Nothing sets a mood better than music. I must have listened to the same three relaxation mixes on 8-tracks thousands of times in the past few months. It helps take you back to another place with good memories. Sight. There were no windows or fresh air in our hospital. So I looked at photos of the outdoors on my iPhone. So depressing, I know. Pack some gossip magazines or other light reading. I'm sure that reading will be tough, but looking at old photos or even old albums might be fun. Smell. They don't really let you burn candles, but if you can bring something that smells like home or freshness, that's helpful. Planning. This helps the control freak in all of us. I have been planning to live my best life for the past four months. What I would do, where I would go. Maybe you can plan a workout regimen or training for a marathon. Something to look forward to once you've recovered completely. Even though you have to take one day at a time, it helps to dream big. 
Feel your feelings when you feel them. This seems obvious, but after my C-section, everyone was just trying to cheer me up. And I was really upset and disappointed. And I had so many other feelings going on. Someone came to visit me and she told me that I just had to allow myself to experience all those feelings instead of fighting them. And then they would wash away. And they did. After you've worked through some of your feelings, start trying to treat yourself like a person and not a patient and ask others to do the same. My mom spent so much time trying to help me and baby me, it actually made me feel more helpless and less independent. Be clear with others what your needs are. There are two types of people who can be helpful to you during this time. I call them gladiators and cheerleaders. If people fall outside these categories, don't spend your valuable energy on them right now. A gladiator is just someone who can do your bidding without questions. A lot of people will have many opinions on what's best for you. Only you can know that, and you should lean on the people who can respect that. Cheerleaders are people who can't actually help with tasks, but just with emotional support. I found that pity is the absolute worst thing that someone can feel, and it makes you feel a thousand times worse. But when someone says you're doing great and just cheerleads along the sidelines, it really can make a difference. Recovery. When you're ready, push yourself to wear real clothes. Those hospital gowns that don't close in the back are the worst, and they make you feel like a patient and not a person. Try to organize it so that you eat as little hospital food as possible. Hospital mush makes you feel like a patient, and I found that just getting takeout from a nearby cafe or restaurant can make all the difference. We were lucky to have friends and family prepare fresh-cooked meals and deliver them to us every day for the past few months. When you're ready, accept visitors. I had a really hard time with this one. I found that the best visitors were my work colleagues because in my spare time, I didn't want to talk about my situation, but rather hear about something more distracting and less heavy. You may feel differently, but family and close friends were actually the most draining visits. If you can, try to get a little sunshine and a bit of fresh air every day. Probably not so feasible during the winter, but even just sitting by a window helps. This one is also for my therapist. Any problem that can be solved with money is a good one. This becomes so crystal clear when you're dealing with an illness. If you're encountering any issues that can be solved with money, throw some money at the problem and make it go away. You have enough on your plate right now. Sheryl Sandberg, COO of Facebook, said in her book, Lean In, that the most important decision you will make in your whole career is who your partner is. I think this is true for life in general. I couldn't have gotten to this point without my husband. Whenever I felt I was stumbling in this unbearably long medical marathon, I felt like he put his arm over my shoulder and carried me along with him. I'm glad that you have your husband and your family with you. Always keep your A-team close by. No one else matters. I love you, and if there's anything I can help with, please let me know. If you ever want to talk, let me know. I won't bug you since I feel like you're probably overwhelmed by phone calls and emails. But know that if you just want to talk or want someone to listen, I'm always here for you at any time, day or night. As for us, there's still a lot of uncertainty. I feel like every time I prepare myself emotionally, 
The foundation collapses under my feet, and the tectonic plates are constantly moving. It's an emotionally draining version of Dance Dance Revolution. My son's condition has been getting more stable week by week, so much so that the tentative plan is that they're thinking of releasing us next week, and his doctors are even considering postponing the surgery. I don't want to get my hopes up too high yet. My son's favorite songs are The Ants Go Marching and Little Bunny Fufu. I find that the repetitiveness of the songs and marches just reminds you that you have to keep putting one foot in front of the other every day, and just doing that makes you a very brave person. I love you. Your gladiator and cheerleader, Race. Thank you for listening. This has been Sugar, a tale of motherhood and medicine. And I'm the author, Raisa Hakoen. You can find us on Amazon.com or like us on Facebook. This podcast has been produced by Aaron Leader and mastered by Keith Rigling. <laughs>